Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to be back. Yeah. No, no, don't, we're not going to do. Welcome back. We're not going to do movie from your mixed anymore. martial arts expedition. That I know, right? Good. How'd that uh, work out for you? One one day I'll be a kickboxer. One day for sure. Sure. <laughs> I'm convinced. It's not going to get me down. I'll I'll be, I'll I'll be right back at it. Okay. Well, you're healing. That's what's important. So. We're so happy about this case. We've talked about it a couple of times before we got our decision. Yeah. So while you were on sabbatical, um, we talked a little bit about this historic win where we were able to get um, expert evidence of a male battered uh, partner into a case and Diana didn't have a chance to talk about it. And um, there was a lot of aspects to it. So we're going to just come back to it for this episode because there's some aspects that are really good. And you really... This was one of the most, I guess, interesting. This was really emotional for me. This case. Yeah. Like I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it through this without crying, but, uh, but I didn't at trial. Remember? Yes. And I was like, yeah, I started crying at trial, and then I remember you turned around, and I was like trying to wipe my tears away, and he was like, I hope the judge saw you crying. <laughs> well, it was, it was hard not to. It was like, you know, some cases are more emotional than others, but. Uh, it's, it's so funny because I never realized what a girly girl I am. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, these cases are impactful. I mean, it's just... I know. You know, I've run so many cases. It's like, you know, lawyers have hearts too. But, you know, but what was really telling in this one when... Because when, this one was done by Zoom, the verdict, just the verdict. Yeah. And our client was in our small boardroom. And um, after the verdict was completed, after the decision was read... He, he was immobilized um, and just crying for several minutes. And so was I. <laughs> no, but he was, he was really immobilized. Like it was, it was such a, a relief, such um, an accomplishment to be able to be believed and have that evidence of his abuse recognized. Yeah. You know, we talk often about how this is, you know, you hear in the media and everything, how it's important for, you know, a victim of real violence to be able to have their day in court and in, and be believed and, and, and have some sort of a verdict at the end of the day, have closure. For him, this was a, an absolutely, it was a transformative process. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, you know, you had said that this was somebody who needed therapy just to be able to deal with the yeah, process. Yeah, it wasn't just for the purposes of the court. I was like, you need to have therapy because you're in so much danger. You, like, you cannot be in a relationship until you learn to set boundaries and, and protect yourself against toxic people like this. And uh, it was just so amazing that, like, like I mentioned before, he, he was calling me almost every week at the beginning. Yeah. And then it would be like a month. And then at one point, I realized that like three or four months had gone by, and I was like, oh, I know you're doing better because I haven't heard from you for a while. And he goes, I really am. The therapy and it, really worked. I know. And uh, but one of the interesting things he said when he was testifying was that, as part of his therapy, he had to recognize that um, he had to care for himself. <laughs> yeah. Should I carry on while you're going to cry now? I know. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, okay, baby, baby. The only time I cry is when I get those really big bills out. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is a good one. This is a Okay. Okay. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding tonight. All right. So, let's, let's, okay, let's get you, serious. You go, you go. Have a shot. Um... <laughs> Let's let's talk about it because it was very emotional and it was it was a very you know important um, case uh, for a number of reasons. But two aspects that I think I wanted to talk about with you that we I didn't have a chance to talk about when Michael was 
on the podcast was really about how one of them... So we're going to say how this expert evidence will factor into issues in the future. And it's only in rare cases, frankly, because there are... You have to have a situation where it's genuine and we were able to tease it out and it was legitimate. But it was relevant to two very central aspects. One was to um, the assessment of credibility. An expert can't uh, give evidence about what's the ultimate issue, which is deciding credibility. But an expert can talk about what somebody's experiencing, what they have experienced, what the symptoms are, and the diagnosis. And then that aspect of the of the evidence can be used in the assessment of credibility. And I think we should talk about that a little bit yeah. so people understand. I think it's very instructive. Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about, um, you know, what, what people can do. It's like, oh, well, just call. Same thing was like, oh, I've got tons of character witnesses who say I'm such a great person or whatever. They think, I'll just bring in an expert who's, who, who can tell them that she's lying or something like that. Yeah, and you can't. They're it's, not allowed to do that. It's, it's a very specialized area. Um, you know, that it was used in this case and experts are, are only for very specialized issues for which a juror or a jury would not ordinarily know. And there has to be real science and study behind this expert evidence, which is why often we assail some of the evidence that comes out in the Crown's case where it's really just based on junk. Yeah. Um, well, and also in, in this particular case, in terms of talking about a man being the, the battered spouse, then we start getting into areas which are still, I think, really not developed well enough, which is stereotypes about um, masculinity. Yeah, so let's talk about two aspects, which I think is really important here to focus on. One will be about the assessment of credibility, but before that is, is, is the, and we've talked about the myths about men, male masculinity, male aggression, male sexual aggression, but still in a lot of cases, and recently two major cases that we've had, if not three, there was very clear evidence that the complainant had grounded her allegations in stereotypes about men, whether they were cultural male aggression stereotypes or just male aggression stereotypes. They were very clearly grounded in it and right out. So in this particular case, let me just set the stage and you can talk about it. But the evidence was clear that the complainant had said, after we were married, he switched. As soon as we were married. As soon as we were married, he switched. And... He became this traditional, I'm going to be careful about how I say this because we're not going to, we don't want to disclose any, anything, anything that could identify anybody in this case, but he became this traditional man who believed that he owned his wife and could do whatever he wanted. His wife had to obey him and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like she became his property. Property. Yeah. Among, well, she was saying all of this, frankly. Yeah. And it was very similar to another case where we had, where again, it was, it was stereotypes about a cultural aspect of how a man from this community would believe that the wife was his property, et cetera, et cetera. And this is not a rarity, right? We hear it all the time. Like, God forbid, if we're asking questions or cross-examining out of the blue, alleging a stereotype about how a woman would be... Or a real victim. No, but a woman in a, from a cultural background, you know, would behave or act or whatever. If we tried to link it anyway, you know, I, I, I'd have a razor blade through me, right? Mm -hmm. And we're careful not to do that. But these stereotypes, even though there's case law addressing it, I'm going to turn it over to you now. They're alive and well when witnesses give their uh, statements to the police. And sorry, I haven't eaten today. I'm on a diet. Um, and... Um, and, and when they testify, and it's, it's just lead. 
Right. So we were kind of lucky with this case in that there was a fair bit of messaging between the two people. You yeah, don't fair always, bit. There was a lot. A fair bit. There was a lot of messaging. And uh, so that's one of the aspects of this case, which I thought, you know, it, it's so important to get through because there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out, you know, what kind of evidence can I get to provide to my lawyer? And, you know, it, it can be very difficult for people to look at their own messages and sort out what's useful and what isn't. But before you get into message, can I just ask yeah. you from your perspective, you're doing these cases with me. Do you notice sort of the the prevalence of still of these male stereotypes? Yeah, well, so here's the interesting thing with this case is that um, the complainant offered two messages to the police in which our client was saying sorry. So just on their own, it would look like he's admitting to guilt in some way. But once you go through, and we had this this plethora of of material to compile, and it tells the bigger picture, which is, this is a person who was saying sorry for anything. He was saying sorry for breathing, practically. And so, you know, if, if you were to look at the messages, like, why would you want to use that as defense? It looks like your guy's done something really wrong. It's like, no, when you put it together, and we have, like, we had something like 25, you know, messages all compiled and stuff. Well, over, we start off with, like, o- over a time several period. hundred. I, I know. <laughs> There's probably thousands of pages. I don't know. But uh, he, he was really helpful. But once you see the whole picture and you see the kinds of things he was apologizing for, and we've kind of mentioned a few of these things before, he, he got kicked out of his own house just for buying her a gift. And so... Well, when, lying about getting a gift. And, and, and then saying, oh, no, we weren't talking about you. Oh, well, then he's branded a liar. And, you know, for the, for the rest of the, of the relationship. So once you start seeing all these things, it, it paints the picture more fully. And then, of course, you know, we, we get into the issue of how much is too much, right? So, like, it, it just, it takes a lot of work to, to sort out which things are compelling and which things are important. But that's that's part of the art of, of um, you know, defending people and, and really telling their story. And, and like you mentioned before, too, like a lot of people, they just feel like they never get a chance to tell their story. And uh, that is one thing. I, I remember uh, Christy Blatchford um, writing an article once questioning whether you know it was better to go to trial and get a chance to tell your story or whether it was better to just you know never be charged because it's just social media or having charges withdrawn and of course we'd always say it's like you never want to put your life in jeopardy if you don't have to yep but 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 i saw her point because there is something uh within you know the soul of an accused person where they they simply want to have a chance to tell their story well there's I've experienced it a lot of times over 30 years where a client has said to me, I want to take the stand and I want to, uh, uh, for, first, you know, I'm a firm believer in, especially in sexual assault cases, that in order to be successful, 99% of the time you have to call your client. But there has been plenty of occasions where, where the clients have said, no, no, I absolutely want to testify. Like, I, I, I want to speak to this. I've been waiting a long time to be able to tell the truth. But can I just borrow that for one second? Because the, the case for just one second. I just want to look yeah. at the paragraph for one second. Because I'm I'm hung up for on this episode about the stereotypes. And there's a lot of case law. Is this? Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of chatter and there's a lot of. Um, there's a number of cases that we rely on quite frequently that they mention in here. And that's one of the ones that he mentions um, is JC by by Justice Pachoco, and, um, and the important thing about that case, and, and he highlights the you know the, the most important part, which is 
that it's not a stereotype if it's grounded in evidence. And that's the job is like, you know, something may sound like a stereotype, but when you look at the individuals and you look at you know, the messages and you, you put all these things together, if it's grounded in the evidence, then it, it, is, it becomes a fact or most likely a fact because of circumstantial evidence. Right. right? But, but then if you just speculate that a certain person would behave a certain way if they were an actual victim or whatever, like you're, you're speculating about how a general person would behave, that's, that's where it goes astray. You're absolutely correct. So we've had other episodes where we've talked about the developments in case law, like I think that's the JC decision mm -hmm. from the Court of Appeal and Chepik and other cases to talk about not, courts have said, don't rely upon myths about male sexual aggression, uh, sexual aggression in, or how males would act in a certain um, context for sex, whether if they're young males, etc. There have been very good strides in the case law. But also about, too, like an assumption that, that women would be passive. Right. Because what, that was the Chepik thing was like there was, there was a woman in a strip club and, and so the, the judge decided that a young woman would never behave a certain way. It was like, you're talking about somebody who's out at a strip club. And you know, it was like there, there were assumptions made about how a young woman would behave. In what that, I'm hung up cases. on, and everybody has to pardon me for this, but what I'm hung up on is just how much we've seen in the last year of this being a leading part of the evidence of the complainant about these stereotypes. And and in this case, it's extremely fortunate, and this is where the assessment comes in. Like you were saying, we had hundreds of messages. We were able to distill them down, I think, to 25 or 35 messages that did a very good job of telling what the true story and the true dynamic was between our client and the complainant. And a lot of it was not just him being passive and saying, I'm sorry for existing, but the complainant being very domineering, exerting course of control, managing, micromanaging everything he does, including his access to the washroom, where he could do his work, when he could be in the apartment, what he could, you know, surprise her with, all of that. But we had it. I remember. Just, just one thing. And then... The surprise thing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So I don't want you to lose that thought. <laughs> just, it was like the one thing is like, he got thrown out of the apartment for trying to get her a surprise gift. And then there was a moment in the cross-examination where... Uh, he then says, oh, I'm planning a surprise for our anniversary. And he had to tell her what it was. And I remember reading across, you're just like, he learned his lesson, didn't he? That's right. <laughs> but so, so what we had, so, so the complainant in this case, like so many others, grounded her evidence in this switch where he became this traditional male aggressor owning his wife. But we had messages and we had expert evidence. So... Again, you can imagine all those cases where that's not available to an accused. And in particular, the judge found that there are a number of areas in which I found the complainant's evidence to have been disingenuous in attempts to mislead the court. But, but equally as important, I do not accept, it's an aspect of this, that there was a sudden personality change, like something switched, as suggested by the complainant. But then him reverting to being passive and acquiescent, as reflected in the text messages, and his psychological profile relied upon by the defense. Right. Let's just pause there for a moment. How incredibly important it is when defending cases, because there still is this prevalence of grounding allegations in myths and stereotypes about men. Maybe sometimes it's applicable, okay? But we're seeing it across the board that we had these messages and we had the psychological profile 
proffered by the client, the messages, and then ultimately by the psychiatrist. Right. And again, How important. Yeah, and, and again, the expert didn't go in there and say, oh, he's credible because blah, well, of blah, blah. Not. They can only testify about what they're qualified on, and, they, and, and the credibility assessment is ultimately going to be up to the fact finder, whether it's the judge or the jury. So, so the experts, again, just so, so people don't misunderstand, um, you know. Explain think, it slowly so everybody understands. Yeah, just, just the limits thinking, of what you can do with an expert evidence. Yeah, just thinking, oh, well, you know, we'll just get an expert and, the, and then they can say that she's a liar or she's mentally ill or something like that. And it's like people really don't understand, um, you know, experts have to be qualified. They have to usually have, um, you know, written something in their field that's been peer reviewed. Like, so that's one part of it. But there's also extreme limitations on what it is they can testify about. Expert evidence has to be relevant to an issue at trial, but not the ultimate issue. They can't comment on credibility of the complainant or credibility of the accused. They can comment on relevant issues. In this case, it was about his psychological profile and the complex trauma he was suffering that, that undermined the whole narrative of the complainant. And so this is where expert evidence now is relevant, and we have precedent for it, to assessment of credibility. It doesn't resolve the issue, but in particular... It makes, it, it makes something more or less likely to be true. And, and the judge made a, a very important point. I found the complainant's description of the accused as being controlling and entitled to have been disingenuous and incongruent in the face of numerous text messages displaying his passive apologetic personality, a person who is trying continuously to avoid conflict. I accept the evidence of the expert that the accused displayed the characteristics of a person with a complex trauma, hypervigilant, passive, and apologetic, who sought to please the complainant to avoid her anger, which appeared easily triggered. So this is exactly how you can use expert evidence in a case like this to address the issues of credibility. And I guess my pet peeve for this podcast is it's so easy still to say he became controlling, he switched, he saw me as property, he did this and that, and it's because of his views, cultural or otherwise, and how incredibly important it was to have these messages, to spend the hours that you did and I did going through them, and then the hours to how to line them up for cross-examination, and then have this expert evidence. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I'm, this case was so important for that, and it's just such a challenge, and we have to be alert to this in the field, that when these stereotypes continue to be used, courts are not as vigilant as they should be to say, hold on, mm -hmm. you know, Where's this coming from? What's the basis of this? That doesn't happen. They just say it. It's in the interviews. It's in the, it's in the evidence. You don't have to rebut this. You can be up the creek. I, I guess that's what's... I guess this was the lingering thing from our yeah. discussion I wanted to talk to you about so much on this, how it's factored into rebutting that presumption of male aggression, which seems that you have to rebut it still, and we needed the expert evidence and how relevant it was to assessing credibility in this case because he accepted the psychological profile imagine if you don't have this i know and there's like uh something that we see quite often i think too is just that this idea that you know 
opportunity, right? Oh, if a guy has an opportunity to yes. take advantage of a woman, they're, they're absolutely going to take it. And it's like, there's there's just insane assumptions about, you know, and one of the things that we've mentioned in some of our closing submissions too is this concept of toxic masculinity, which is creeping its way in. And um, there, there is, let's be fair though, there is good case law from lower courts and the Court of Appeal trying to address that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. But not good enough. <laughs> but but the assumption You that, really want to say something. What? Just be careful, mindful. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave, I think um, that, that's one of the things that there was a bit of a split with some feminists even, where they're just when toxic masculinity started becoming a, a buzz phrase, that there was a little bit of a split too, because you know what? Women, women do like men. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, this, this, this whole thing of trying to demonize men is just, it, it's gone too far. And sure, okay, some certain things can happen, especially in certain types of environments, people get carried away or whatever, but, but um, you know, there's toxic femininity too. So I just, I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of a phrase that demonizes either. Uh, either gender just by the sake of their gender, so. No, and the language used can become so commonplace and so defining and lead to such um, stereotypes and wrongful assessments that that's where it leads us down a very bad path. And that's, that's also so important about this case too is like, like we had mentioned one of the former Supreme Court judges said, uh, I'm not saying that men can't be battered spouses, but if Although you're gonna rare. Make, if you're gonna make that argument, you better have an expert. <laughs> yeah, well to, to her credit, and, and we quoted this in the other episode that Lure de Bay said that it's so poorly understood mm-hmm. that um, you're going to need expert evidence for a judge or a jury to understand it and then properly apply it in context. And here it was. But but this isn't the only case of a of a man who's a married no. spouse. I mean, I've in in my travels through uh, YouTube and and through the nonprofit and stuff, I've heard horrible stories about men being beaten and and humiliated and stuff and, and they there's almost no shelters for them and things like that too so you know sadly there's just a new case that came into the office that we still have to get the disclosure but um he uh the complainant has pictures of certain injuries not certain injury like a little bit of bruising and scratches and stuff and it's the same allegation he was a very domineering controlling misogynist ex and um, and he he beat me on a regular basis, and then the clients in the office going, like, you know, I I didn't realize she was taking pictures, but yeah, we had struggles, and you know what, I suffered real injuries. I, we had physical fights. She, she hit me with like a a glass or a cup, so I would be defending myself. Mm-hmm. And then I asked, well, why did you stay with her? Right, the stereotype, right? And he's like, well, for the children. And he said, but I never took pictures of anything. I didn't think ever about going to the police. I didn't know she was like trying to build this case against me. And now he can't see his children. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things. Just came in. It's one of the things we're hoping with this decision is that it can kind of open up the doorway for for, uh, men's voices to be heard when in fact they are the the one who was the real victim in the case. And and men not to be laughed at when they're in court testifying to say, you know, this will lead us into another decision in another podcast, but men not being laughed at or being scoffed at as to how they would behave or react to something allegedly. Like, 
a man would never put up with that. They would leave the marriage or they would, you know, they would do X, Y, and Z. Right. You know, for a man still to come out in his own defense and a trial to say what our client did or this other gentleman who just retained us still would be met with a fair amount of skepticism, sometimes scoffed at, for that for making that assertion in the defense. It it had it had legitimacy because we had the messaging and we had the expert assessment and evidence. Yeah. And also they shouldn't be humiliated. No. Anyways, this is an important one to follow because it's going to factor into some really, of other other defenses. It's a so. really important one. Well, have a good night. Thank you everybody for watching. Sorry if this was a little repetitive, but God, I can't escape, you know, the implications <laughs> of this case and and anyway, so like thank subscribe you. Hit notifications. Share. <laughs> Share the videos. Send leave, comments, leave comments. Send us emails. Thank you very much. Good night.